Hello, everybody. It's your podcast producer, Casey Callanan. I just want to let you know that as of October 1st, 2023, this podcast has had nearly 80,000 total downloads and YouTube views from listeners in 84 different countries. On the facultyfactory.org website, we've drawn nearly 40,000 web visits from users in 122 different countries. This is truly an international platform, and we'd love to invite you to be a guest on our show. Our host, Dr. Kimberly Skorupski makes the experience very engaging, relaxing, and quite frankly, she makes it fun. As producer, I'll make the edits if you need it, so there's really no pressure on you and we can make edits to your interview on the back end if you'd like us to. We just want to hear from different faculty around the world so we can all learn from each other. Please reach out if you'd like to be a guest or to nominate someone in our academic medicine community that you think would be a great guest for us to hear from. You can visit the Contact Us page on facultyfactory.org or you can contact Dr. Skorupski directly at kskorupski at jhmi.edu. Hello, everybody. You're back at the Faculty Factory, and I'm Kim Skorupski sitting here at Hopkins. And reminder to everybody, this is an international podcast. I was talking to somebody at our conference, which was in Indian Wells, California. It's the Association of American Medical Colleges. This year was a joint conference between the Group on Diversity and Inclusion, GDI, and the Group on Faculty Affairs, GFA, and people were talking about the podcast, and somebody said, oh, it's great that you have that for Hopkins, and I kind of like grabbed him and, and said, it's not just for Hopkins, it's an international podcast, so I hope you're getting the message that this is not, I happen to be sitting here at Hopkins, and our my boss graciously supports this effort, but this is an international community, and sitting with me today uh, as evidence of this being an international collaborative venture is Dr. Merrill S. Cohen. Hi, Merrill. Hi, Kim. How are you? I am so happy to see you. I I love your energy. We met last week and talked about stuff and, and podcasting and your position. But folks, let me tell you who Dr. Merrill Cohen is. She is an MD, MSED, she is a professor of pediatrics, the associate dean for faculty development at the University of Pennsylvania, the Perlman School of Medicine. She is also the associate chief in the division of cardiology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, commonly known as CHOP. I was looking at her online and learned that she is a pediatric cardiologist specializing in fetal and transesophageal echocardiography. I'm not sure if you still are, Meryl, but I see that you used to or you are or used to direct the cardiology fellowship training program. You do. I used to. I used to. You used to. You mm-hmm. used to. So yep. a really broad, many hats, many leadership <laughs> roles. So interesting. Um, I love that you're with us on the podcast today. And Dr. Cohen and I were talking about resourcefulness and how to be resourceful. And Meryl and I were were talking about how sometimes we get the impression in our faculty development roles that faculty members feel constrained or limited. They feel like they have to do things. They woulda, shoulda, coulda, all these forces pressing down on us and sometimes feeling like we don't have personal agency to decide how we're going to do things and how to make our path. So I 
think you're going to love learning from Meryl Cohen today. She's going to talk about how she's been resourceful throughout her career. Thanks again, Meryl, for being here. Why don't you tell us about your your journey and then we'll just kind of have a conversation. Thanks so much, Kim. I think my resourcefulness came out of desperation. Um, (laughs) Sometimes, you know, when you're desperate, you you tend to do things that really uh, in the long run may help you out. So thank you so much for having me here with you today. It's been such fun for me to get to know you and hopefully continue to collaborate with you uh, in our roles in, uh, in, in the Dean of Faculty Development. And that's a new role for me. It's been extremely exciting. You know, I started out as a pediatric cardiologist trained here at CHOP and had no idea what that career would really mean and sort of what the criteria would be for me to uh, essentially get promoted, you know, through the academic track here. And so uh, I sort of put my head down and just started working. And uh, so one of the first things I tried to do uh, was become really good clinically at what I did. I think that if you are contribute to your, your, your field uh, in a meaningful way with your colleagues at work, if they trust what you do, and that takes, by the way, years. You don't come out of fellowship uh, knowing how to do, being an expert in something, and you don't come out with people trusting that you know what you're doing. So it takes patience, which I'm not very good at, uh, and uh, determination and you know a little bit of grit to sort of make mistakes along the way and learn from your mistakes and try not to make the same mistakes again and to you know sort of create um, an expertise in an area, a niche of your field where people ultimately start to trust you and think that you're a good clinician. So I think that was one of the first things I was trying to do. At the same time, you know, in in the the kind of um, track I was on, which is called here at Penn, it's called the clinical educator track, which is a track, uh, an academic track that requires that you have expertise in the clinical realm, in education, and in research. And so I really... uh, did not know how to do research. Uh, So I had to sort of learn along the way and take some classes while I was still an attending physician and and try to learn statistics and how to sort of develop a a research protocol and how to write. I wasn't a very good writer in the beginning. um, And so I had to learn how to do that. And then also be able to teach, you know, teach residents and medical students and fellows ultimately and all of those things sort of are related to each other. Um, and at the same time, uh, you're trying to build a practice and um, you're trying to ultimately develop uh, not only a reputation at your own institution, but uh, regionally and then nationally, and then ultimately, if you continue to go on internationally. So these were all tremendous challenges. I had a uh, eight-week-old infant when I started my fellowship and then had two more children early on in my career. So in addition to all this, I was trying to manage having children, at, at, you know, full-time job and having full t- being a full-time mother, which was um, also challenging. So, um, so I think that some of the ways I was resourceful, particularly during fellowship, when I had a very young infant, um, I really became good at time management. Um, lots of people in the fellowship program because they didn't have children at home and this is nothing against them, but 
they they could sort of lounge around in the fellows room and chat about stuff and you know kind of you know get to their work eventually and i knew i had to get home to feed my son and to be with him because i had been away all day so i was really really organized and i always sort of got my work done i was not going to be the last person to leave like people thought you had to be i i, I knew i had to get home to be with my with my son so I got really good at being organized. I think that has carried through uh, ultimately in my entire career that I'm pretty good at time management and I'm pretty good at multitasking in, in, in that sense. So that helped me along the way. I, then, I did ultimately, a, a few years after um, I finished my training, I did ultimately hit a wall where I felt that I could not continue to do the amount of work I was doing at work and be successful there and also be successful at home with my family. I have a very, a wonderful husband who was very, he was terrific about, you know, helping uh, take care of the kids. There were there, we really shared the responsibility. So that part was good. And we had a good, fortunately a good um, daycare system in place, but I was feeling um, really badly about getting home at six or seven o'clock at night. And my kids were at their worst. And all I wanted to do was throw them in bed and, and, uh, and not, you know, sort of, um, you know, interact with them. And, and this was just not a good situation. So this was where I think some resourcefulness came in because I kept being told that I could not work part-time on my, the track I was on that, you know, that didn't exist. That was not a part of Penn's system. There was no uh, ability to do that. But it turned out that there, of course, was a little uh, little paragraph in the bylaws of the university that a, a, a person uh, of power at the institution who I went to um, saying that I was really having this difficulty and struggle uh, found for me. So this person was really incredible and, you know, and, and found this resource for me and um, enabled me to then go to my division chief and say, I wanted to go part-time for a period of time. It added uh, an extension onto my promotion clock, which I was fine with um, because I was at an assistant professor level, ultimately getting to associate professor. And it enabled me to work part-time for two years I worked 50% time. And, you know, when, what happens when you work part-time, uh, people have to understand is you work more than you're paid for. So that's, you know, just a reality. Um, and you also, um, you're not as respected in your community as you were before because you're not there as much. So, you know, the people who are there every day are sort of the go-getters and you're considered not that anymore because, you're, you're sort of step, you've stepped back. That was very hard for me to accept. And so I think I worked even harder to make myself known or present um, when I was here. Um, and I did allow myself to be um, accessed even during times when I was theoretically off, which I, which I actually don't think is a good idea, but I, I did do that. And this was 25 years ago. So it's, you know, sort of different scenario now. Anyway, I did that for two years. It really helped offset a lot of my stress with my family. My youngest uh, child then entered kindergarten. So I felt very good about going back full time. And I really was re-energized. 
when I went back full time. Some people like to continue part time work, and I think that's fine, and that works for a lot of people. But I did feel the need to go back to full time work, and was very happy I did. So those are some of the things I did early on. I found that I was not a an outstanding researcher. I was a good researcher, but I wasn't outstanding at it. And so I had to find other ways to make myself successful so that I was going to uh, ultimately get promoted. Um, and so I was given a, um, a leadership position too early in my career. I became the echo lab director at CHOP. I think I was five years out of maybe four years out of my fellowship. That's extremely early. And um, I took, took it reluctantly because my, my division chief asked me to do it. And um, of course, that took a lot of resources uh, or a lot of time, a lot of my time and took it away from other things um, that I needed to do for my promotion. You don't have to be the Ecolab director to be promoted, but you have to produce peer-reviewed publications and do your teaching and you know be clinically very competent. So um, I knew that that would happen and it did. Um, so what I decided to do um, in that case is, you know, try to really, um, bring in fellows and medical students and, um, residents to help me with my research projects. So it was a win-win situation because they get a first author publication and I'm the senior author. And so I don't have to do all of the groundwork that's required for the projects, which I did not have time for and did not have protected time for. And, but it allowed me to mentor, um, you know, sort of students, trainees, uh, and become a senior author on, you know, on, on, on publication. So that was sort of a way that I got through the, some of the research part of it. I now, also, Meryl, can I interrupt you? So this, I just, I'm putting this in a, in a timeline. So this echo lab director position you said after your fellowship, this is before you went to um, part-time status. Yes. No, it's after. This was after. Yeah. So when you come, you, this is now you have, have come back. I came you're back. still an assistant professor. Yep. I was an assistant okay. professor. Okay. So yeah. now you're, you're running the lab and you're getting yep. the senior papers. Okay. Go ahead. Just want to make sure I would have so, an order. No, no, that's totally fine. Another thing, uh, you know, I was given an opportunity, at, but you know, took it was that we have a, NHLBI run um, pediatric heart network. And so this is a network of uh, several institutions which do research projects together. And another great way that you can get research accomplished without the, you know, the, I'm going to say the grunt work, if you will, is to do a multi-center, you know, multi-institutional study. And so some of those studies I was a middle author on, but some of them I took the initiative to, to either be first or last author on. And this was a huge, um, and th these are high impact papers in high impact journals because they're multi-institutional studies. We're a very small community pediatric cardiology. Um, and, you know, in the adult world, when you do a clinical trial, it's thousands and thousands of patients. In pediatric cardiology, when you do a clinical trial, it's maybe 100, 200 patients. So very different, you know, sort of very different resources. In any case, I got involved in that, and that enabled me to get really involved in doing a number of publications um, 
that were high impact and um, have subsequently still been referenced many, many times. And this is all because, you know, I sort of got involved in this because I was asked and I um, and I was very happy to be involved in it. And it also connected me uh, with a network of people across the country who do what I do. And so these kinds of multi-institutional uh, organizations are fantastic for young faculty. Um, they really uh, sort of get your name known and they get you out there and also get you to meet important people. I met extremely important people in my field this way. Um, another thing that <clears throat> happened was that my, so is sponsorship. So my um, sort of mentor here at Penn or at CHOP um, was a fairly well-known pediatric echocardiographer. And when he became a program chair of a national committee, um, there, you know, relatively early on in my career, he asked me to give a talk. So that was my first national talk. I was incredibly nervous. I misspelled people's names up on the podium who were sitting on the podium and embarrassed myself. <laughs> but <laughs> nonetheless, um, I got, I gave that talk and, um, and that led to other talks in that meeting subsequent years by other people asking me, which then led to me being asked to be on the, the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Disease Council of that organization. Uh, and ultimately, I became the program chair of the pediatric program for that organization. So that one talk from my sponsor, you know, led me to get really on the national scene and get involved in national committees. Now, when you get involved in national committees, I will, you know, let the, the young people in the audience know that if you get involved in these, you just, you, you say yes to the things that you can take on and you make sure you do what is asked of you because, because it's not a title. It's something, it's actually work. So if you say you're going to do it, uh, you do it and you do it on time. So getting involved in writing committees, which is wonderful and a great experience, getting involved in national committees, you have to be resourceful. You have to come up with ideas. You have to go to the meetings. You have to participate. And so I was really eager to do all those things. And so that national organization led to me being asked to do other national organization stuff <clears throat> for the American Heart Association the American College of Cardiology, and this organization is called the American Society of Echocardiography. All of these organizations gave me tremendous uh, national presence and opportunities. Um, <clears throat> so those are other ways that you can be resourceful. Many of these organizations, not just in cardiology, all over, have early career opportunities. So they have organized, you know, they have sort of subcommittees within their organization for early career faculty to start to shine. You know, they come and they have, you know, sort of, they have research competitions, they have, um, they often have sort of luncheons for mentor mentees, um, all sorts of things. And that's really how a lot of young, um, young uh, academic people can get involved in these types of organizations. And once you succeed in the early career pathway, then you move on to other sort of or parts of the organization. So, um, so those are some of the things um, that really uh, helped me, you know, in my desperate attempt to get promoted from assistant to associate professor. I will say that um, at the time, and this was a long time ago, what you got from Penn in your reappointments were these warning letters. 
And so, uh, so I want people to know that you can still succeed, even if you get such a warning letter, it can be quite devastating. I still keep those letters in my drawer. So I remember them. And it said something along the lines of, we are very concerned that you are not going to get promoted. I got it at year three and at year six. Yeah, exactly. Now, what didn't happen, which happens now in our organization, but didn't happen then was they didn't give you any um, resources or or, um, they didn't really discuss with you what the problem was or what you needed to do or how they could help you. So it was just basically this letter that I remember when I got was very, was, I was so dejected. I just kind of threw it in a drawer and I thought, okay, what am, what can I do with that? So we've come a long way from that, but um, I want people to know that even if they get warning letters like that, um, it, it's not the end of the world. And the idea of a warning letter like that is to alert you that you do need some help. You do need some help, uh, you know, uh, along the way. And so, you know, what what you should do with a letter like that is, you know, figure out what the issues are, meet with your faculty development people at your institution, try to figure out what the problem is, and then, you know, potentially going to your division chief or department chair and saying you need this uh, a period of time, you know, to sort of get through something so that you can succeed. So it may be that you need a six month period of more protected time so you can get a grant in, you know, or get this like big paper you've been working on over the, over the hump and get it, get it submitted. Um, or, you know, get, uh, organize a, a course that you want to participate in or, or be, you know, the leader of. So, you know, I, I want people to know that you can get those and you still can succeed. Meryl, I love your honesty. Thank you for <laughs> your candor. I love the way you just said this, you know, yeah, I get these warning letters and look, here <laughs> I am, a professor of pediatrics, a dean for faculty development, and I still keep my warning letters that we're really concerned about your being successful. Wouldn't you love to be able to hold that up and say, during the interview to be like the dean for faculty development. And by the way, um, I used to be a a problem child that people were concerned about me. That is, I was definitely a problem child. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) I have, I have had, I've told this story before. I had so many unscored grant applications. I was going in every funding cycle for NIH for an R01, everyone, Feb 1, June 1, October 1, I mean, October 5. I was doing all the cycles, mad, like a, a you know, mad woman just trying to get funding and it wasn't happening. And I was keeping track of all of them. Oh, sure. Unscored, triage, triage, unscored, unscored. And my friend said, why do you put those on your CV? And I said, She's, it makes you look like a loser. Like you're just not getting things like, what is wrong with you? You're not, I said, I want them to know I'm in the game. I'm swinging, I'm swinging, I'm at that, I'm trying. But um, it is, that kind of authenticity is is refreshing. So thank you, Meryl, for yeah, sharing. I, I think that people need to know, you know, first of all, it's similar to your grant uh, uh, story you know, how many papers I've had that have been rejected multiple times by multiple organ, by multiple journals. And, you know, it, it, see, to me, if it was easy, we wouldn't be doing this. I don't know. I find that sometimes new gen, the new generation of people want things to come easier to them than they tend to come. And I, I, I think that, you know, having, being resourceful, having some grit, 
having some determination and being able to take it when you are rejected um, and then picking yourself up and then just moving forward is an incredibly um, important characteristic to have to help you succeed. If, if everybody, if it came to us all so easily, it wouldn't be worth it. There'd and- be no challenge. Yeah, you're, you're right. I feel it's so fulfilling when you have a, a challenging problem that you kind of work hard. It feels right. so much better than a, eh, that was right. no biggie. Anybody could do that. You want, it's something psychological, I'm sure. Right. I, w- I mean, I wear being professor of pediatrics here as a real badge of honor because I know it was really hard to get. If I If it was easy to get, it wouldn't have the same meaning to me at all. You're exactly, you're exactly right. I, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to kind of go back to your story because I underlined some things that you said that I hear so often. I just, I would love for you to kind of um, um, dig a little bit deeper. So you start off with saying desperation, you know, the desperate <laughs> times called for desperate measures. And I, and thank you again for sharing. I'm imagining you with an eight week old little boy and, you know, you running across and just hitting that wall and saying, all right, something's got to give here. Yeah. So you describe mm-hmm. that that experience, and could you take could you take us back to? Let, let me step back before that because you right away said I was on the clinical educator track that it's that's called you know there at Penn. But first of all, how did you know you wanted to be on the clinical educator track? <laughs> because I have faculty who are saying, well. I don't know what I want to do. It's so early. And as you nicely laid out, the first step in the door is I want to be good at, you know, Abraham Lincoln says, whatever you are, be a good one. If I'm a cardiologist, I want to be a darn good one. I want to be an excellent one. If I'm going to be a, you know, a basic scientist, I want to be a good one, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, we do what we know we are trained to do, that the certificate, the diploma says we can do. So we focus on that. And then quickly after coming to our institutions, we're asked to like choose, how did you know? Or did you, was it easy? Was it a no brainer? Did you do like some of us do in undergraduate, change majors? How did you come upon that decision? I I wish I could tell you it was a uh, very meaningful decision for me. But honestly, at the time, that was the only track really I could be on. So, you know, Penn in the early days had two options. Well, three options. You could just be a, you could be a clinician and not be on an academic track. Um, Or you could either be on the clinical educator track or the tenure track. So the tenure track was, you know, sort of required funding, et cetera, mostly uh, somebody who's protected about 80% of the time for their research. So knowing that I wanted to be a clinician, um, I went to the CE track. Now, Today, we have several other tracks available to you. So it is a harder decision for people as they're starting to know what they want to do. And in all honesty, I'm not sure that I would have been on this track had I had the options that are available to us today. So there's now a track at Penn, and I'm sure there's one at Hopkins and other institutions that um, that um, sort of evaluates you on your clinical abilities and education and teaching, but you don't have to do the research component. Um, And here it's called the academic clinicians track. And so, you know, I might have gone on that track. I'm really glad that I didn't in the end because I, 
to get to have this research experience and research career that I found very satisfying. So I'm glad that I didn't. Um, but I, I wasn't given that option when I started. Got it. So that that's helpful. And I think what you laid out so nicely is you described to me a career arc where through a series of events that you, you know, hitting that wall of saying, wait a minute, you know, baby, babies, this, something has to change here. Hard stop. I I need, I can't do multiple full-time jobs. And then being proactive and intentional in saying something has to change here, going to part-time. You also describe situations where you're, you're, investing in relationships with mentors and sponsors and trainees. And that, I mean, you laid it out so nicely with um, when you were the director of the Echo Lab and saying, okay, I got residents and fellows and students, and how can I help everybody win? That all is, you're building relationships. So that sounds to me like you've been able to navigate the career by intentionally, thoughtfully asking mentors, asking sponsors, getting in the professional society, the asking that, that um, putting yourself out there. So it's not all reactive. You kind of had the head on the swivel, it seems to be. Am I, am I kind of hitting yeah, that right? I think that's right. I think, you know, in my own institution, I, I did have some mentorship, but I didn't have everything I needed. So getting involved in that pediatric heart network enabled me to seek other mentors at other institutions in my field. I I sought a mentor at my own institution who was not in my field just so that she could give me her perspective on where I was when I was really concerned about how I was doing. And I would meet with her on a monthly basis and we would go over my CV and the things I needed to do. So I found people, I, I reached out to people and you know, I sort of honestly advocated for myself to try to um, get myself where I needed to go. Because in some areas here, I wasn't getting what I needed from, you know, sort of my own uh, leadership. So I, I sort of actively sought uh, those kinds of experiences. And, you know, it helps that I, you know, I'm a friendly person, uh, I, I really like people. I like being with people. When I give a talk at a at a meeting, I always, you know, you always thank the people who who uh, gave you that opportunity. You, um, you know, you reach out to others and um, and you you show other people's research and you know so that they sort of appreciate you. You these are things that people sort of know, but not everybody does. To be honest with you. <laughs> Um, yeah, for saying it that way, Meryl, because exactly, I mean, you definitely exude the energy that is resonates with me. I too am an extrovert. I enjoy being in community with people. I get energized by people. So it is very squishy, huggy. Feel, it, feel, it feels good for me. And yet, of course, we know our colleagues and friends who th- this is not natural for them. And then I'm, you know, har- I'm hearkening back to COVID when the world shut down for two plus years, clamping down so many opportunities for faculty members who may be more introverted, maybe more shy, maybe uh, don't have that confidence. So it's even, it's even more, um, it's, it's a greater challenge for some faculty members to do the things you're describing that is just very natural. So 
Can yeah. you, I always struggle with trying to give advice to um, faculty members for whom this does not come easily. Do you have any kind of like wisdom that you can help? help yeah. or, I do think, I do think um, having good, always having good mentorship and sponsorship helps in those situations. And to some degree, people have to understand that they have to get out of their comfort zone a little bit. So I took on this associate uh, dean for faculty development at Penn. This is way out of my comfort zone. I, you know, I've been a clinician educator for all these years. I I was the training director for the fellowship program, so I do have that experience. But getting involved in really faculty development was really new for me. So I got a master's degree when I was 54 years old. Um, and that also being in the classroom again and having to write papers and have homework and things like that was a real, really difficult <laughs> and challenging experience over a two-year period of time. That was way out of my comfort zone. I was with, you know, it was me and a couple of other people my age, but m- mostly people in their, you know, in their early thirties. Um, you know, uh, and so, so, you know, you, you do have to get out of your comfort zones. If you want these things to happen for you, mm-hmm. you have to figure out ways that work for you that, that enable you to reach out uh, in, in these types of, because the community of your, of your medical field is so important to your success. You can't do it. Al- there are very few people who could do it alone. Um, you know, you need um, collaborators, you need to network, you need to get your, you know, you sort of get yourself out there and also take risks. Um, I find in the clinical world that people are very quiet because they don't want to be wrong. Um, you know, I, I am not quiet <laughs> and uh, my colleagues would tell you I'm not quiet at, at any time, but when I'm in clinical conferences, I, I put myself out there and sometimes someone will say, that's not correct. I'm like, Okay. So what's the worst thing that can happen to you in that situation? You're not correct in that situation. It, it's not the end of the world. And so people are so fearful of those types of things. And I think they just have to be you know, courageous enough to work, to know that they're not going to be right all the time. But if they're right most of the time, then people listen to you. I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier also, here's something else I wanted to um, revisit time management. You're oh, really yeah. good at time management and the multitasking. Can you give us a couple examples of when you said, you know, that your colleagues are lounging around and they're taking it easy. They got there, they're <laughs> chatting and they're on the old, the, the coffee pod. And you seem like you're a list maker list. You like, I'm such a list like, maker. Oh my gosh. Right. I am such a list maker. I, um, yeah, I always have my task list up on my computer. So I know sort of what I need to do and when I need to do it by, you know, I write a lot of letters of recommendation for people's promotions now, which I think is a real honor because people wrote them for me and, you know, for the audience out there, I think these are very important um, tasks to do for others uh, in your community. Um, Somebody took the time to do it for you. So you should do it for others. Um, you know, papers that are due or chapters that are due or a talk that I'm giving. So I have like the list up on my screen and it has all the deadlines on it. So I tend to sort of prepare my week knowing, okay, this, these are the tasks I'll get done. And I even put little notes in my uh, daily schedule of the things I'm going to do that day. 
And the other thing I do for my admin, my administrative assistant, I'm fortunate enough to have one, is I block out times in my schedule for her not to schedule any meetings. Because otherwise, you know, they sort of get put in your day. I'm sure, Kim, you have a million meetings every day. Um, And in my new job, I have even more meetings. So I'll block, I don't block the whole day out, but I'll block a two-hour period of time, uh, you know, a couple times a week if I can. And I'll even go so far as to sort of call it something so that nobody will try to interfere with it. And I'll even put a little pad on my door that says I'm in a conference call so that nobody knocks on my door because people tend to knock on my door spontaneously, which I love, love people to come in and ask me questions about an echo or about a patient or whatever. Um, So I, I will do those things. I will purposely put in my schedule the time to write a paper. People don't realize that that's a really easy way to get things done. And somebody taught me that years ago, and that was extremely helpful. Um, another resourceful thing, unfortunately, this is one of the things I'll be remembered for because in my in my field, because I, I've given this talk about you know work-life balance many times is get someone else to do some of the tasks at home that you know other people can do. So I've always had a cleaning person. <laughs> and when I was a medical student, I went to a women in medicine conference and what resonated with me and came home with me was somebody said like, don't clean your own toilets. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's like, so like such a brilliant thing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> don't clean your own toilets. And so I've gone to many of these work-life balance things and people will come to me years later and say, I took your advice. I hired a cleaner <laughs> and I'm, I'm just so thrilled that that's the thing that I will, you know, sort of go down in history for. Changing your life. Toilets, one exactly. toilet at a time. <laughs> yeah, one toilet at a time. Yeah, and, and it could be anything. You know, it doesn't have to be that. But th- if there are things in your life that you don't have to take care of that are relatively the you know the the cost benefit ratio is is good enough, you know, let somebody else take care of it so that you have the time to do the things you want to do both at work when you're focusing on that and at home when you're when you're home with your children. So you know, when my children were young, they're all grown adults now, but when they were young, you know, I didn't want to spend a Saturday cleaning my house. Um, I wanted to spend a Saturday at their baseball games or taking them to the park or whatever it was. So those are really important, you know, sort of little tidbits of things that you can do from a time management standpoint. So it's not just time management at work, it's time management at home. And I tried really hard, no matter how much work I had, Um, to get home for dinner every night. Um, So my children ate later than other children. They didn't eat at 5.30. They ate at 7 or 7.30. But um, we would all sit down together and have a meal. And that's where I would sort of learn what was happening in their day. And it it just brought us together at least one time a day if we didn't have other opportunities. And then if I had work to do after they went to bed, you know, I wrote a textbook on nights and on weekends, um, you know, edited a textbook with with several other colleagues, but I wasn't able to do that during my nine, my eight to six day. I had to do that, you know, on my own time. But you know, if I was able to put my kids to bed, then I had an hour or two in the evening that I could do it, or I could do it on a Saturday morning. You know, I know people want to be more present at home with their families, and I think that's incredibly important. But Sometimes you do have to do a little bit of work 
on the off hours. And it's just important to organize yourself in a way that you can do it when it doesn't have impact on other aspects of your life. Yeah, I love it. Meryl, you also earlier, you talked about how trying you worked for a period of time when you were part time, you were conscious of the feeling that because you were not present, that you were maybe a second class citizen. Yes. And so you had to work hard. You said you worked harder to be known and to be present when you were there. And, and I'm thinking of that may have parallels to um, faculty members who maybe are in different promotion pathways or tracks or seasons of life or in bridge funding, not getting funding, um, having life events happen, you know, parents getting ill, children with needs, marriages, having problems, all the things that happen in our lives. How can you can you take us back to that time in terms of being efficient when you are working? What kinds of things did you do to be more visible, to make sure that you had the full impact, to maximize your impact when you are on during all this chaos? What kinds of things do you remember doing that yeah, made you feel like, all right, I'm present, I am here and see me? Yeah, I think I... I um I took a lot of risks in um, my clinical sort of uh, opinions. So I would I started to make my clinical assessment opinions known. So if so, in my world, it, the highest risk situation is when you're in the operating room with the surgeon and you're doing a transesophageal echo, uh, which is assessing the repair that they have just done on a congenital heart disease uh, of any type. And it's a real uh, high risk situation in that if I miss something on that, you know, transesophageal echo, then that child could potentially be injured. They may not survive the operation or they may have to come back and have another procedure done, which is devastating to the family, to the patient, and, you know, ultimately to the surgeon too, who has just done the procedure and thought, they did an okay job. Um, so I had to really um, feel confident in what I was seeing and be able to communicate that effectively. So I really learned how to communicate well with the surgeons and each surgeon has a different personality. So you have to do it a little differently and also be able to tell them when I didn't know something, never, you know, sort of never be confident if I wasn't confident and ask for help if I needed it. And I think that those kinds of things have always helped people get better at what they do. And so I, I really was very purposeful in making sure I always asked for help if I was not confident in a decision. Um, and I think the surgeon seeing that you build a trust with them and they start to develop um, a rapport with you where they trust what you're saying and they trust that you will ask for help if you need it. Um, you know, so they, they're not going to have to ask for you. Um, you don't want to be arrogant about something. You don't want to be sort of pompous and say, I, you know, I know all of this. I, I didn't. And so I had to learn along the way. And um, I think those are some of the ways that I tried to be really resourceful at work. And I, I volunteered even though I was part-time to get involved in some, uh, you know, sort of chop um, organizations and committees and was an active participant in those things. Cause I wanted to be, 
even though I was working part-time, I wanted to be a good citizen when I was here. Um, so I wanted to really be a part of the community. And that helped me learn, you know, we're such a huge organization here as you are at Hopkins. And, you know, we live in our own sort of bubble. And so to extend myself and meet a hematologist or a oncologist or an infectious disease specialist and, you know, build community with them. Sometimes that led to a research collaboration um, or a teaching collaboration of some kind. And so usually when you open a door in, in, in your life, it's going to lead to something good. It almost always does. So that's what I was always trying to do, even when working part-time. And then when I came back full-time, I sort of, you know, let everybody know I'm back and, you know, I'm, I'm ready for all this. And, um, and, and, you know, it worked out uh, really quite well. So I'm really glad I had that time. Um, I became a terrible potter. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I tried to learn how to play piano and I was really bad at it, but I kind of enjoyed it. So I did a few things that even were not related to my children during that time. Um, but, um, I'm, I'm so glad I had that time with them. I was able to take them, you know, to their music classes, pick them up and take them to school and go, go into their classrooms to, to read. And, you know, the things that you, you want to do, you know, for your kids when you're working full time, it's hard, but um, I was able to do that. So anyway, those were some of the things that I did. I love how you just talk about terrible Potter, feeling <laughs> badly, getting my rejection letters. You're so humble. I, but it also... It's oh, if you saw my pottery, you would agree with me. <laughs> this is, but this, the lesson I hope people are hearing, especially early career faculty members, is that you don't have to be perfect. Oh. You look at this is just you just try it. And, uh, you know, what Meryl said, what's the worst thing that can happen? You have some really ugly, bad pottery. Oh, well. <laughs> What happens? That project doesn't go forward. Or, oh, you can take a class and learn how to do statistics. And then you're like, ah, I don't want to do it. I'm going to have, you know, the biostatistician do it. Or no. I'm going to learn about this and it ah, doesn't really work out. I'm going to pivot there. What's the worst thing that can happen by taking risks? I don't know. I mean, I think that with that we need to be sometimes a little bit having a little bit more courage. And I like how you you laid out these principles that I think can go throughout our whole lives of being confident without being arrogant and then being honest with yourselves and with other people and then asking for help. That kind of, to me, builds a bedrock of your character that if I think if we can all start with that, own what you own. I mean, just own it. If Mm -hmm. you're good at something, you say you're good at it. That's not bragging. If If you can actually do the thing, you're not bragging. You be confident in what you can do. Be honest about what you can't do or you don't know. And then, gosh, be, co- be courageous to ask for help. Isn't that kind of like the serenity prayer? Like, God, grant me the serenity <laughs> yes. to accept the things I cannot change, the courage exactly. to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It oh, works, gosh, right? No. It works. And and I would, one, one other thing is, you know, own up to your mistakes. Uh, whenever I make a mistake now, and even, even, you know, all along the way, I'm, I let everybody know. Um, in, in other words, I mean, I, I sort of want people to understand that, you know, the, the more seasoned people here, now that I'm on the other side of this, you know, as sort of a senior person in my, in my um, division, that we, st- all of us still make mistakes. And I will, ver- 
always tell my trainees, you know, the mistakes that I've made, I'll show them to them. I'll physically show them. Oh, here's where I missed this thing. Or I, I decided this about this patient, but I really should have done this. Um, I think that those are really important for people to know about because, um, you know, we're all going to make mistakes and, you know, in medicine, it's, it can be really devastating when you do. And I have had devastating mistakes. Um, but you still have to, you, you learn from them and you have to forgive yourself of them. And you have to let people know that you've done this and that you're, you're, you're not going to make that mistake again because you've learned from that. So yeah, I think- and you're setting a culture. You're also building a culture of this is how, this is the blueprint for how we do things around here. We are honest, we are confident and yet humble. And this is, and by my sharing my failures, you're learning from this. I'm learning, but you're learning. We're contributing to this knowledge base of we know what works and we know what doesn't work. And how can we mitigate these things happening in the future? And we can only do that. We can only improve by sharing the collective experience of where how where we messed up and where have we done well. That's only going to make us better. And I like how you clearly, not only in your personal character, but in the institutional culture, set this up of just as this is how we do business around here. Dr. Merrill Cohen, I love it. Thank you so much for your honesty. You are delightful. I am so happy for you and so proud of um, all the work that you and I and we do together and this being here together. This is so, I just, it, I really appreciate your your honesty and um, this means so much to everybody listening. And I'll, I'll leave the parting uh, comments to you, Merrill. No, thank you so much. So it was I was so happy to meet you when I heard about, you know, all the incredible work that you do at Hopkins and I'm going to copy a lot of it. I just want you to know that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just, I was just thrilled to be a part of this. Thank you so much. It was a really great honor for me. And um, I look forward to us networking and collaborating in the future. And, and it will happen easily because that's what you <laughs> and I do. And yes, this is a faculty factory where we share tools to build leaders and we're all lifting each other up. So again, Dr. Merrill Cohen, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Faculty Factory podcast. Why don't you jump on and share your wisdom or sponsor someone else to be on? Until next time, see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.